Good morning, everyone. This is Shakita Slater of the Wild, Weird, and Witchy Podcast. This is episode 74, and I'm going to be talking about my favorite comfort show called Ruby. It's actually spelled out R-W-B-Y, and I'm going to kind of explain why it's kind of spelled like that. So in the show, uh, the first letter of each team member's name is used to form an acronym that stands for the name of the team. In some cases, the first letter of a member's surname may be used. Uh, The team leader's initial is the first letter of the team name. Every team name follows the color naming rule of remnant. With the exception of the ace operatives, this means a team name has to be a color. Mean a color, sound like a color, or make people think of a certain color. And that's just about it on the name. And I'm also going to talk about what is remnant. Okay, so remnant is like a future fantasy world of Ruby with airships, gadgets, high-tech weaponry, and a form of natural energy called dust existing side by side. Uh, The four kingdoms of Remnant are Veil, Vacuo, Atlas, and Mistral. Each of the kingdoms has its own distinct culture. For example, Atlas was known for its martial nature and technological advancement, Vacuo for its rough and tumble lifestyle, so Veil and Vacuo are located on the continent called Sanus. Mistral is on the continent of Anima. Atlas was on the continent of Solitus. Vital is the name of the island to the north of Vale. Other known landmasses include the Menagerie, the continent to the bottom right. The last dragon-shaped continent to the west of Vale, north of Vacuo, remains unidentified. Although its southern region was apparently at one point inhabited. Bleh. No settlements are currently known to exist on the continent. The majority of the continent is geographically darkened for unknown reasons. There are also smaller islands around the larger continents. However, it is currently unknown if any of them are inhabited inhabited, (laughs) or parts of the kingdom. So, it's a lot to go into with the world of remnant, especially with Ruby. But I'm just covering the base stuff of the show so everyone can get like an understanding of it more before I get into these like the summary of these volumes. I'm just gonna keep most of them short and brief. Um and that's just about it. So a semblance think of a semblance is basically think of my hero academia with the quirk. But this one is typically developed from a person's aura. So, what is really a semblance? A semblance is a manifestation of one's innate and personal power as an ability to, a unique to each individual, with the effects varying greatly from user to user. With the sheer number of people unlocking their semblances, it can lead to unrelated people gaining similar abilities. There are some semblances that everyone thinks that they know what they are, but they're not. 
The natures of one's semblance is noted as representing an aspect of their character. However, a person's semblance can be similar to the semblances of their parents or other family members. The Schnee family semblance like summoning glyphs is unique in the fact that it's completely hereditary. A person can name their semblance when they fill out their application form for entering a Huntsman Academy. One example of this would be Coco Adele decided to name her semblance Height when filling out her application for Beacon Academy. According to the Aura, the fourth installment, Ruby World of Remnant, a semblance is more of a, tangi a tangible projection of one's aura. Uh, Pira, the character of the show, I will get into that later, implied this connection when she told Jean that the use of aura can help him discover his semblance and other stuff as being fueled by said aura. Also, those that use semblances are able to manipulate certain physical phenomena according to the nature of their powers. Some individuals, such as, again, Waishni, can use aura to create glyphs that generate some desired effect, the most prominent being sudden disruptions in movement and or bursts of momentum. Others have the ability to enhance their performance, such as Ruby Rose and Harriet Bree, who are able to move at incredible speeds. There are also those who can generate and or manipulate a specific aspect of nature, like Pyrrha, who can control magnetic forces. However, there are also existed symbolists that depend on external factors in order to function, such as Yang and Nora, who gain enhances their strength by taking damage and absorbing electricity, respectively. They are the female Thors of this show, and I will not ex explain anything aside from that. And using dust, certain individuals can modify their semblances with elements, such as, again, once more, Weiss, using Mertonester to change her glyphs, and Blake Belladonna inserting dust vials into her weapon, her gamble shroud, to give her shadow clones elemental properties. So, overuse of one semblance for prolonged periods may advise, like, adversely affect its user at certain times. This was demonstrated by Weiss on one occasion after using a series of glyphs in rapid succession to assist Ruby, subsequently collapsing afterwards. Uh, this is also seen in End of the Beginning when Glenda, the episode End of the Beginning when Glenda shows signs of exhaustion from using her semblance to fix the city. Uh, the fall of Beacon and everything. So, also, it seems that the emotional turmoil or stress can affect one's use of semblance either negatively or positively. So, that's basically it on your semblance. They are also unlocked during strong physical or emotional events. Some semblances can also be unlocked by certain external phenomena, such as Nora, who unlocked hers, when she was stuck by a lightning post. Neptune's semblance could also be another possible example of unlocking this method when he was thrown into the ocean by his brother Jupiter. Jupiter, so it's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, semblances are also like muscles and are able to grow and evolve. A clear example is her, you know, and blah blah. 
Assemblies can also grow to gain a unique new ability altogether. You know, um, Lyren, who at first only possessed the ability to mask emotions, but later gained the ability to see the emotion of others. So you know how a semblance is unlocked and how it's used and how it could take up like a turmoil on you and other things. But that is it for the world of remnants and the semblances and everything else and the name. I do want to talk about Ruby um, volumes 1 through 8 today. I have all this time today and it's my off day so I have enough time to do an episode today on a podcast as I am currently remodeling my apartment so I'm gonna be working and painting at the same freaking time so hey I can do it all right so in Ruby volume one you know using the power of dust team Ruby led by Ruby Rose trains to be the next generation of protectors called huntsmen and huntresses so Team Ruby trains to fight crime and monsters unknown as the Grimm. Together they will protect the world of Remnant as they should have and as they continue to do so. I give Volume 1 a 3 out of 5 uh, because Volume 1 was pretty much like an introduction to the show. There isn't too much of a plot line in Volume 1. It's mainly introducing the characters and the roles in the story it's totally fine but for volume one i think the short episodes actually helped it as they made them easier to get through and they were really really fast you get like seven minute episodes <laughs> and it it's, it's just amazing so the story i gave the story a three out of five um it felt because, you know, the volume follows 15-year-old Ruby Rose, a talented girl who wants to become a huntress when she's older. Uh, during a burglary, she catches the eye of a headmaster of Beacon Academy, the school for future huntsmen and huntresses. She's invited to the academy despite being two years younger than everyone else. So after a short mission, she's paired up with three other girls and they become Team Ruby. With Ruby as their leader, so she learns many valuable lessons on both hunting and friendship along the way. Look at that, the power of friendship. The characters, the characters see the highlight of the series. In a season without the strongest plotline, it gave the characters time to shine. I also love how each member of Team Ruby is based off of a fairy tale character. First, we have Ruby, our main character. I really like her. She's enthusiastic and motivated, and while she may not be the brightest of the group, she's definitely the happiest of and the glue that keeps the team together. Plus, she's really people smart. She was the first one who was able to connect with Blake by talking about books. She's based off of Little Red Riding Hood. Argue with the wall. Weiss is the white-haired girl. I'll admit, it took me a while to warm up to her, you know, because she was just so arrogant and full of herself that she pissed me off so bad. But she has to learn a lesson that she isn't capable and good at hunting as she thinks she is. And she becomes much better than that. She's based off of Snow White. Blake was the most relatable for me. That's my daughter, y'all. I believe in Blake Belladonna, supremacy respecter. 
as we're both not really good at talking to people and our bookworms. But let's just say she has the most twists in this volume and becomes more de- much more developed at the end of the season. She has some major spoilers. So let's just say there's more to her that meets the eye. She's based off of Beauty from Beauty and the Beast. She's based basically Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Yang is Ruby's older sister and half-sister. And like Ruby, she's also happy, spontaneous. Per- like she's just a spontaneous person. She's got, you know, you know, Yang got the dog in her too. She's one of the most physically powerful of the team and is supportive of her little sister. She also has a habit of being pretty spontaneous and impulsive, which can put her in some trouble. And she's okay with that. She's based off of Goldilocks without the three bears. And the girl loves the There was also no team Juniper, which has Jean, a guy who has no experience. There's Pira, a girl who is best fighter of them all. Nora, a cheerful, bubbly girl, and Nora's best friend, Ren, who barely says a word. The animation, I give this one a 2.5 out of 5. It was okay. The animation, you know, it was stiff. It could barely show emotion on the characters, and that's okay. Um, If it weren't for the art style, which I like, and the awesome choreography of the fight scenes, I would have likely given this a 3. It just didn't agree with me, but I do know it improved by Volume 2 and 3, so that just goes without saying. I love the soundtrack by Jeff Williams. That soundtrack was a 5, no, it was 10 out of fucking 10. 10 out of 10. It's pretty catchy and fits the show well. I also like the OP, This Will Be The Day. Even the vocalist Casey Lee Williams oversings at some points, but I can overlook that. Doesn't matter, she's a great singer. Listen, all eight soundtracks for all eight volumes of Ruby were just top tier good. Like, let's. If I could give you my ranking on most of the tracks that I listen to on rotation, I will. And I'll probably do that on my Twitter today when I don't smell like paint. Uh, let's just see. Awesome fight choreography. Cool take on Lee characters, made with love. The cons, oh, those were just pros. The cons are the animation, again, no solid plot. You know, the voice actors, I love them so much, bless them. So my final grade for the volume, 3 out of 5. Almost so 3.5 out of 5. It had the potential, but my complaints... Listen, don't mind my complaints, okay? Are mainly superficial and do improve in later volumes. I also finished, like, I finished volume 8 yesterday, like, last night, so you can expect a review on it soon. So, volume 2, you know, we get the improvement. It may not be my favorite. Like I was just saying, uh, Volume 2 did get an improvement on a good bit. The story, I give it a 3.5 out of 5. The first half doesn't have a solid story, but like the first volume, it's mainly character-driven stories. 
mainly focusing on the main four's relationship with each other and the relationship between the two members of Team Juniper and Pura. So it was also implied that the antagonists are up to something. Aren't they always up to something? Like, damn, those antagonists. It also includes revelations about Penny, the energetic but mysterious girl that Team Ruby met at the end of Volume 1. By the middle of the volume, the plot starts to get moving again, focusing on Blake's obsession with the White Fang. The White Fang is an extremist group where faunus beings with primarily human features, but some animalistic features, fight against discrimination violently. So, the group she belonged to at one point. Chaos at the Beacon Dance that could be deadly, and a school assignment that calls for the teams to shadow a hunter or huntresses. The characters, like the first volume, were the highlight, even if there were some complaints. As much as I love Ruby as a protagonist, she isn't having a ton of development. Um, we learn more about her and Yang being half-sisters and about her mother disappearing, but for the most part, she's still the same happy, enthusiastic girl as she was in Volume 1. However, her kindness and acceptance is shown even more, especially with her interactions with Penny. Even though their friendship isn't shown much, it's definitely a dream. We respect Penny Paladina in this house. Weiss has proven to have a lot more of development, while she still may be elegant and a little bit snobby and stiff. It's nowhere as near as bad as it used to be. But she's more trusting towards her teammates and isn't as overconfident as she used to be. Her reasons for wanting to become a huntress are revealed. She is aware of the moral, ambiguous parts of her family's dust company and wants to change that for the better. Blake, my daughter, is also given a lot of development and not all of it is good. For her, the character, not that it's poorly written. Her reasons for being part of the White Fang are revealed just as her obsession with figuring out what they are, you know, what they're doing next reaches an unhealthy level, impacting her health in a way many can likely relate. She wants to become a huntress to change the world for the better, but is scared and doesn't know how. Last season, Yang felt like the least developed of them all, but that changes. She reveals her in Ruby's story. They're actually half-sisters. That clears up so, so much. And that her own mother disappeared. We'll get into her mother in Volume 5. Even though it's much, it's weirder than with Ruby's, when she was younger, she became obsessed with finding her mom, which almost ended in her and Ruby dying. Yang mainly wants to become a huntress for the adventure. Juniper gets a god amount of development, especially John and Pira. I want the other two members, Nora and Ren, to get some development, and they do get a lot of development later on in the volumes. As much as I like them and their relationship, they just feel there to fill out the team, and I want more of them to play more of a part in the story. The villains are my other, you know, they're not really complaints. You know, they didn't, at the time, Cinder, Mercury, and Emerald didn't have much of a role except to cause as much chaos as possible, which is totally fun in everything. But Torchwick is a fun villain. 
but I want to know more about his motives for why he does what he does. Same with Cinder, and later on in the volumes, we got that. Especially volume three. We know nothing about her and her motives, yet, and unlike Torchwick, you know, she's in a particularly colorful character, making her a little less fun and a little more fun to watch. Mercury and Emerald are okay, but they seem like, you know, the henchmen kind of characters. Neo is another new villain I was hoping to see more of, and we do get to see a lot of her. She has a fun character design, she's powerful, and she's mute, which I find very interesting as well. So the animation is a little tricky to grade at this time, but I'm just going to go ahead and just book it to a 2.5 out of 5. While it improved a lot since Volume 1, animation-wise, style-wise, there were still awkward, clunky moments, mainly when the characters were meant to still be and not to just be still and not fighting but the fighting is still one of the best parts and has improved too mainly the animation is still not the best but both it and the art style improved a lot since the last volume and i always forget to mention the character design i love the character designs i am so sorry uh the characters all look interesting and the costuming is really 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 cool too i'm ugh. The soundtrack, again, 10 out of 10. It's still good. It's action-packed, yet whimsical and has its softer, more atmospheric moments. I also like the OP a lot more than the last one. Casey's vocals are, again, powerful while having their more subtle moments in the beginning. She may still oversing just a little bit, but that's totally okay. You know, who hasn't done that, like, you know, with any show? But I could look past that, but it's a little less noticeable. But, you know, she has an amazing voice and can out-belt, you know, she can just belt out notes. Uh, let's see. The world, the, the world building. The world building even improved the season. We find out more about Remnant, the great war that was fought 80 years ago. The hunter and huntress's occupation is explored more. And even technology is introduced, which is really different for such a fantasy-based series. So my pros with Volume 2, expanded world building, improvement all around, character relationships. And what I mean by character relationships is relationships here were absolutely amazing. Team Ruby is an amazing squad. Each girl supporting each other physically and emotionally. Jean and Pierre's friendship is also developed and realistic and possibly turning into something more. Nora and Ren's friendship is also absolutely fresh. Say your beats. I like them. The cons, limited character development, aimless villains, and that's just about it. So, volume two, four out of five. I was close to giving it a five, but I have the feeling that'll be for the next volume. Ruby has definitely improved in volume two in its storytelling, animation, and voice acting. So I hope that some characters will get more development, get more involved next season, and that the villains have a goal and defined roles in the series really soon. I also want to know who those other two characters who appear at the end are, but hey.
I already know who those are, but y'all have to go watch the show to go find out. And now we're coming into volume three. Hey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> volume three at the time was not what I expected. If you're sensitive to spoilers, maybe don't read or listen to this podcast episode. But this is a spoiler, spoiler free episode. So, you get it. This will also be a shorter review than usual without the pros and the cons because a lot of those have to do with spoilers, so I'm so sorry. Story wise, for volume three, five out of five. This time around, we had a really much stronger story than the last two volumes. The primary story is the Vital Festival, where the Four Kingdoms and Remnant come together for fighting competitions to show off their skills and abilities to celebrate the peace between all four kingdoms. However, there's a dark, stormy undercurrent thanks to the main antagonist, Cinderfall, and her henchmen, Emerald and Mercury, and no appearance, oh yeah, and appearances from Roman Torchwick and Neo. However, after episode 6, we have a turn in the plot that I just really can't really talk about. Let's just say both halves have strong storylines this time around. But also focusing on the characters plenty, but letting it be just as plot-driven as it is character-driven. Let's just say that. The characters and their relationships. I give the characters a 4 out of 5. You know, their relationships with each other are also given opportunity to shine as usual. Mm. Ruby still being a fun protagonist, but in the past I've had concerns over her lack of development. So in some ways she's the least developed of Team Ruby, and that is not something you want for the main character. However, Volume 3 lends countless opportunities for possible character development, which I am so happy about. On the opposite end, Weiss probably has some of the best development. Because in this volume, we're given more insight into what her family life looks like with the introduction with her older sister, Winter. That's also implied she comes from a controlling cold home, as illustrated when her father cancels her credit cards to make her call him. She also has problems with her semblance, mainly with summoning things. More of Blake's past with the White Fang is revealed, and it proves to be darker than what we expected. She kind of reminds me a raptor from I don't want this kind of hero in some ways. But like both are cat hybrids and have crazy stalkers they share a past with after them. Anyway, after episode 6 she is shown to have some bad trust issues. But is trying to put that behind her and extend more trust to her team. And Yang, okay, talk about character development with major spoilers attached to this episode. I'm so sorry. A lot of the spoilers this volume revolve around her. So this will be short. So let's just say she has development, some good and some not so good. <clears throat> I will not mention. Vol, uh, t- oh my, my goddamn Jesus. <laughs> T 
Team Juniper is given development to, of course, mainly with Jean and Pura. Again, spoilers. I, I'm trying spoiler-free episode. I'm trying not to spoil as much as I can for you. I still wish Ren and Nora would be given some development, though. As much as I like them, they just seem, you know, like filler characters, which bugs the hell out of me a lot but i like them and they need to get more screen time and they do get some screen time in volume four five six seven eight i will say that much so i mentioned my problem with the villains now i mentioned i voiced some concerns with the villains last volume well volume three seems to be trying to solve that problem by finally showcasing the actual goal now the goal is not the main goal. This their current goal was not the main goal. Uh, like yesterday's price is not today's prices. <laughs> but at least the villains now seem to have a point in the show rather than merely being thrown, just being there thrown there to create as much chaos as possible. So you know they have a role. And it's a good role with foreshadowing and mystery. So there are also some new side characters, as well as development of older side characters like Oz, Pen, and Penny. Some new characters will be Winter, you know, Weiss's older sister, and a fan favorite, Crow Bronwyn, who is the uncle of Yang and Ruby. Basically, he's that one awesome uncle everybody wants. In some ways, his dynamic specifically with Ruby reminded me of the quote from Supernatural family don't end in blood despite being only biologically related to Yang Ruby is treated just as much of a niece as someone who has family friends who are like non-biological family I like that <clears throat> so the animation five out of five the animation did get better in Volume 3. It's much more fluid and less stiff than the first two than it used to be. So now it looks really professional and well-budgeted. While the fight scenes may have dropped in quality after Monty's you know, passing um, back in 2015, um, that's okay. Not everybody can be a prodigy when it comes to fight scenes, and he was one of a kind. It's only natural, so while it may be saddening as the best parts of the first two volumes of animation were the fight scenes, it's understandable, so keep an open mind and appreciate how great the animation has gotten better in literally every other way. Thank you. The character design is still awesome. Everyone looks unique and oftentimes has a ton of detail and even foreshadowing and symbolism. Soundtrack, 10 out of 10. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, when I tell you I loved every soundtrack, this one was my favorite one. Because When It Falls was the, uh, the opening to this volume and it was kind of chaotic for me it starts off nice with a little piano riff and then it goes heavy metal and i was like yes i love this and 
However, the songs on the, the album were pretty good, vocal-wise and instrumental-wise. The world building. This was a standout. The lore mythology for Mermnet is truly explored, proving to be a staple of how Ruby will progress from now on. Not to mention the dynamic between the four kingdoms is explored. Remnant always had great world building, but this volume showed just as much depth there is to it, as well as the symbolism. So my grade for volume 3 of Ruby, a complete 5 out of 5. This, to me, at the time, was the best volume of Ruby so far. It proved to be vastly different than the other two, yet could handle pretty plenty of dark as well as the light, making it very well-rounded, as well as, you know, having the variety. <clears throat> so, we come to Volume 4, you know, this one... Now, Volume 4 with the animation? Oh my god. Volume 4 comes off right of the heels of the Fantastic and Exciting into Volume 3, which brought so many elements that the first three volumes spent building up to a head in, massive, in a massive confrontation. We ended the volume with our little title characters scattered to the four corners of the globe. That's exactly where we picked up with this volume. Weiss is in the Atlas, dealing with her family squabbling and the increasingly isolation, dealing with the isolation tendencies of the Atlas government. Blake has gone south to the menagerie where she is hiding after everything that has happened with Adam last you know, season. Yang is at home, also dealing with the repression of Adam's actions. Oh yeah, volume three, Adam Taurus kind of showed up. Sliced off Yang's arm, and Blake left, pretty much. Ruby herself, meanwhile, has taken to Mistral with Jean, Nora, and Ren and try to protect Mistral from a similar attack that destroyed the Beacon last volume. What I feel like in Volume 5, no, four, my god, Volume 4, in this part, I felt like the season feels so, like, more incomplete to me. We've got, again, four different major storylines that all needs to be told, but the time spent on them is nowhere near equal. So, again, we, you know, got to that part. So, with Weiss and Blake, in particular, get... So, okay, did I already talk about this one? Oh my gosh. I have to fly. So. Okay, my bad. I left off on notes. I am so sorry. <laughs> uh, With Weiss and Blake dealing with, you know, going back home, dealing with family issues. Weiss on a negative aspect of her family issues versus Blake, you know, with a positive, you know, reaction from her parents. So it was really good getting to have them go home and just, you know, be, you know, away with family and just be away from everything that's been going on with the fall of Beacon. 
And, you know, we get some focus on Wines powering up and learning how to make use of her summoning, but then the season ends before anything can be done with it. She didn't even use it in the escape. Like, Blake fares slightly better since we really didn't know anything about her family other than they were just old school white fangers. Who were pretty much there before the current violent regime took over. So thus the information we get from Papa Belladonna, who was also formerly in charge of the White Fang before it took a violent turn, was interesting world building, you know. However, the main part at the end of the season was just essentially Blake regaining her will to confront the White Fang head on instead of just running away. <clears throat> So this is why, to me, Blake got more of development because she wasn't that scared person that she was in, like, the first, second, and third volume of the show. Like, at the end of this one, she became a lot more confident and a lot more open to herself. And that's why I was saying why I like this volume as well, because everybody kind of, you know, went their ways separately. You know, Yang at home, dealing with the aftermath of what happened. Blake went home. Ruby went on another adventure. You know, Weiss went home. So, everything... You know, from a mental, physical, and emotional aspect of it, it was good that Team Ruby had to be separate. It was it was good for them to have to be separate, and then meeting right back up at the end of this volume. And it was so cute, because I loved it. So, it was good development for Blake. But Yang's storyline also doesn't get much time, because it feels more of a bit hold to me even though it's a bit hard to discuss without you know the spoilers at the end of volume three so if you've seen the show you know what happened if you haven't seen the show i'm gonna try again once more spoilers i'm gonna keep it brief i'm gonna keep it cute for y'all you know yang seems to have much more direct trauma than blake after her encounter with adam you know last volume as predicted by a sizable portion of the fan base <clears throat> She did get an artificial arm to replace the one she lost. I liked seeing her and her father spar after she put the arm on. You know, that new mechanical arm. So dope. As well as the moment when she pulls the motorcycle out of the storage. The motorcycle speeding through Mistral is a good closing for this story. Though, I guess it could be argued that this also lacked something of the moment I was waiting for from Blake and Weiss. They didn't get a bike. Yang got a bike. Yang get the ride on a bike. Blake had to come back on like a ship or something. Which was not fair to them because they didn't get a bike. This leaves us with Team Ranger and their path to Mistral. Um... This is definitely where the bulk of the storyline was focused. We got more interesting details about the world, the character backstories, and two major fights this season in the storyline. 
probably my favorite part of the storyline was the evolution of Jean from where he was the past three seasons. Like, while he's still not a fighter on the level of the other huntsmen and huntresses in training, he's certainly getting there. Like, Jean is improving, like, really good in this one. I was so proud of my boy. <clears throat> so we get to see his drive in the wake of Pira's death last season. So he continues to train under the regime, the regimen. She designed the regimen she designed for him. Oh my god, this is about me. <laughs> So, there were also some interesting hints that she may not be completely out of the story. So, based on what woke Ruby up in the second episode, the silvery sparkles around that scene, and the fact that we still don't know much about the silver-eyed warrior's power, so, you know, this is also a powerful, quiet development that I quite enjoy. The rest of the journey was more of a mixed bag. We got Nora and Ren's history, which was good. It felt like they were setting up a branch threat of the Horseman Grim as a larger threat. <clears throat> this was a Grim responsible for the devastation at Xion Village, as well as Ren and Nora's backstory. So, you know, one might think it would be a more major element going forward. However, it got taken down two episodes after we see it in Shadows and Ren's flashbacks, so that felt like either a bit of a missed opportunity or a bit rushed. Another major fight scene this season was against the new antagonist Tyrion, another follower of Salem. We actually got to see Crow going full-ish power against an upper-tier enemy, which did not disappoint at all. Another major elevation of this volume involved another element of Salem's plan being revealed to the viewer. So the four relics that she seeks is one, on one hand, an interesting justification for why she wants to destroy the academies beyond simply crippling the ability to easily train more huntsmen, but feels a bit too similar to the maidens from last volume. <clears throat> I realized that in the series kind of has a four theme going. Four member team, four academies, four maidens, four main henchmen under Salem, but something about the relics just felt repetitive almost. So, depending on how they are used in the future storyline, of course, but it did leave me with the feeling that we've seen that before. The new characters, by large, pretty good. I like to hate Weiss's family we meet in this volume, and I like to like Blake's family. I love Blake's family, but I hate Weiss's family. Those two elements make a fun contrast with each other. Personally speaking, I love a good group villain shot, which this season delivered on right away. But the only one we get introduced to at any length is Tyrion, who might be the least interesting on account of apparently being one-note psychotic, a sadist, if you will. I'm much more interested to learn about Dr. Watts, a no hazel going forward. On and finally, Oscar seems to have some interesting abilities, possibilities as well. He's another one that hasn't yet had much time to shine, but you know, with Oz putting his head all the time, like you know, voices and shit. 
and you know we get some good things from him going forward uh, going forward yeah sure okay awesome that's how i get to volume five finally she was the first scene two seasons ago our full introduction to raven really has me interested and to all the possibilities so raven for those that do know but for those that don't know is yang's mother yeah it's yang's mother and it's crazy how you know that'll get mentioned in volume five the new animation style for volume four was really impressive it took a bit of an adjustment at first since it's such a dramatic improvement over the first three volumes but even though there was nothing wrong with volume three you know like Almost the volumes got hit or misses. So, but I loved it so much. Things feel smoother and not as quite as stilted. Um, the action sequence, the set pieces are still very well designed and interesting. And the last fight in Kuro Yuri, while I may have issues with how we got to it, was still a very gripping final action piece. So, I'm going to wrap up volume four because this, this was kind of like, you know, wild. <clears throat> Upon consideration, felt, you know, volume four of Ruby felt like a good half of a season, but not necessarily a full season in its own right. It is the type of story that needs to happen to transition from the more direct buildup that the first three seasons had into something new going forward. But on its own, it felt lacking in places. I will probably like the season more. And I kind of do like the season, this volume more. Um, but you know, five, six, seven, and eight, completely different. But uh, if I had to rank volume four, it would be at number four. <laughs> on my Rudy rank list. So I'll post my favorite soundtracks and I'll post my favorite uh, rankings of the volumes for Rudy. So we'll get on to that. But uh, that's volume four. So I'm happy that at the end of this one, the team got together <clears throat> and everything. So it was really, really cool and very fun. And volume five, you know, however, did a good job of addressing some of the concerns I've had with the previous volume. So let's see how, let's talk about how that took, you know, <clears throat> volume five picked up right after the previous one left off. Team Ranger and Crow finally made it to Haven Academy and Mistral. They got there. Woohoo! To investigate where Cinder came from as well to warn them to the threat of the threat to the relics. So Oscar has made his way there to join up with the team. Weiss is on her flight from Atlas towards Mistral, not knowing Ruby had made her way there as well. Yang is on her mission to find her mother Raven. Blake, her parents and son, begin to gather full, you know, influence to stop the White Fang's plans. So, three of the four members of Team Ruby are all converging on Mistral for one reason or another. 
So, <clears throat> when we finally got the reunions for the various team members, it was a very good feeling. Like, especially, like, the scenes of the teams sharing the big meal right after Yang and Weiss rejoined them. It felt nice to see these characters all together again and to see exactly how different they all are from the early points of the show. So, you know, it did help to highlight the character growth and the maturation of the characters over time while the remnants of Team Juniper don't get as much to do this season outside of Jean when confronting Cinder towards the end. Oh, this is the one where they all got to meet up and not four. Four was when they left. Volume 4 is when everyone was kind of leaving to go meet up to, you know, Haven Academy of Mystery. This one, Volume 5, I'm currently on, this is when they did get to meet up and, you know, Team Ruby reunited again. So I was so happy for that one. I'm sorry for the mix-up, you guys. I, I thought I got that one right. I really did. <clears throat> so, you know, it's nice to get the development from Yang and Blake in particular. You know, Yang has a lot of issues to work out this volume, both towards her and her mother and towards the team. So, you can really see how Yang still seeds over Blake leaving them behind and how parts of that might be connected to her feelings towards her mother. So, the confrontation with Raven in the last episode ranks really high up there in my list of favorite points in the entire show. A big portion of Blake's development was from the end of the last season, but we get a chance to see throughout her actions this season. So, it was nice change <clears throat> from what had come before, though it had some issues with the length of her plotline. I, yeah, yeah, we'll get into later. So, probably the part that surprised me most about this volume, though, was how much I grew to like Oscar during it. Last season, he was mostly a non-entity to me, but I knew they were building to something. But, you know, since he didn't do much last season, it didn't really amount to much. So, now, now that he's here... With the rest of the cast, however, he's starting to come into his own. I think the explanation of what is happening to him is definitely interesting and raises some curious ethical issues. He suddenly had this other soul forced on him, which is now guiding him down a path he may never, you know, he never wanted. Since Ozpin and Oscar will eventually merge, it's an open question of how voluntarily unethical this is. Sure, Ozpin says his soul goes to those of, like, mind, stance, morals, etc., you know, who probably will agree to it. It still feels like a big question about what it means that, you know, due to Ozpin doing this. So, Oscar may cease to exist as his own entity and just become Ozpin in the future. Another highlight of the season for me was Oscar talking to Ruby about fear and how people can do 
you know, what he is now forced into. So the animation and the art style in Volume 5 are also very nice. Like, we get our first real look at one of the major kingdoms is outside of Vale, in addition to the Menagerie last volume, which isn't technically a kingdom, but still in this volume, and it's really interesting, different, and in certain aspects, there is a world of difference between Beacon Academy and Haven Academy being, you know, schools and everything, despite the difference that it's felt. I would like to have got to know a bit more of the town itself, since essentially all we got of the actual town was during Crow's montage. That being said, we spent three seasons in Vale. So it's only natural the animation and facial expressions continues the improvements of last volume. The change in the visuals from the first three to the later two was just a bit jarring at first, but I'm quite happy with it now. So, that being said, I don't have a gripe with this volume. I do not. I truly do not. It is hard for me to talk about the animation and the art than diving, you know, without diving into the fight scenes. Like, I know I'm not the only one to notice or comment on the fact since, you know, the fights themselves have gotten so much good. Maybe some with less dynamic, some more good, and then the scenarios aren't as crazy. They're... Um, there's not necessarily as much creativity and innovation in the actions or the movements, and it just feels much more grounded, for lack of a better word. Compare, for instance, the major four group fights in the series to most of Volume 4 and 5. The group fight against the Nevermore was incredibly dynamic. The fights on the highway and the train were wild rides. Where the whole cast got to show off interesting moves, dodges, special attacks. In this volume, we have one fight that definitely tries to evoke the same spirit as those earlier fights. When the maidens fight, we see some hints of what was before. The giant glowing tree, the collapsing cavern, and the great agility of both fighters definitely remind me of the things that came before. It's definitely the best fight of the volume, and better than the fights in volume 4. It doesn't quite reach the same levels as some of, you know, the best in the series, but it is better, you know, better fights, you know, in volume 4, you know, but it is definitely a commendable effort, that being said, um... Interesting fights and all, so it stands to reason that the magic cannot be precisely recaptured, and yeah. My other main gripe with the season is that Blake's plot, while important and eventually connected with the rest of the volume, goes on a bit long for the payoff we eventually get. So like, I understand why you need it to be there. But at the same time, how long it took and how quickly the final bit wrapped up in the end. I felt like it could have been more streamlined. 
this was another strong season overall for me. I don't know about y'all, but as you might be able to guess from the fact I cited two conversations, some of my favorite moments, I am very fond of the writing and the character growth this season. At this point, followers just need to ask themselves if they if they're invested enough in the world characters and the writing to keep going even if the fights are not what they are used to be. For me personally, they definitely are. So volume six was a I think a turnaround for me. And coming into the volumes, coming into the soundtrack for volume five, yeah. This one, I rank it number three. Volume 5 soundtrack, I ranked it three. Yes. Because it had about seven tracks that I did love. About seven tracks at best. But, uh, yeah. Alright, I'm going to cover six, seven, and eight. Because I, I think I shortened it. For the three. I think I've shortened it for the three, and my cat is scratching my back. If you hear me say ow a lot, like Salem is scratching my back for whatever reason, and I love my cat so much, so I don't know why she's doing this to me. Um, and my dog is sleeping, so it's not much that he just chooses not to do. So my pets are just around me while I, you know, while their mother works and Thomas is at school. So I'm not really worried about any of that at the moment. But uh, let's continue on with volume six, seven, and eight. Before I get to six, I just want to point out that my growing hate for Ironwood did not come up until. Volume 7, episode 11, when <clears throat> his decision to save Atlas, rather than not, you know, try to hear Ruby out on how to save Mantle. So, we'll get to that in a second. So, so volume 6, I did this one because this wasn't like short for me. So, volume six, this one's shorter to me. So, to keep this one brief, the soundtrack for this one was amazing. Ruby has, I don't think at any point, has had a weak volume. But it makes it more impressive as it's tough to just keep churning quality tunes like this. Like, you're not going to do me like this. The theme, the best themes are the Neo theme, Adam theme, and Miracle. I personally like Big Metal Shoe, but you know, I'll, I'll get on to that later on. And then you have other high quality songs like the Volume 6 intro and the emotional theme for Pira. And... You know, it's hard to say how the soundtrack stands up to the previous volumes, but it's definitely five, five-star material. Casey was belting out vocals on Nevermore, and you're not going to tell me no differently. You're not going to tell me difference. 
Then we have the animation, which is all great. As I've mentioned with the intro, the fight scenes have vastly improved. We've already seen the potential that this post volume three animation style brings through dyn you know, dynamite fights like Crow versus Tyrion and Raven versus Cinder. But you know, <clears throat> whatever they did between volumes worked as we did get a like a dynamite reaction scene in a premiere. And then we get other battles like Cinder versus Neo and Adam versus Yang and Blake as fight scenes as one of the reasons why the series got so big in the first place and it's great to see them return. It's no small reason as to why the volume is so good. So again, to keep it brief, we got to talk about the excellent writing. To, you know, gotta thank that as well. The series has always been able to grab your attention with ease. And this one is no exception. And I'm definitely enjoying the plot. And the character development. Like, you know, the interactions and development are always on point. We finally got most of the questions in the series answered to the point where it felt like we could reach the end game soon. So, as each volume is about as long as the movie... I think we can reasonably end the whole saga by volume 9, but there, you know, are also enough supporting characters and subplots going on that it could last till way after that as well. I think we're gonna get, like, I think after 9, I think we're gonna get, like, I don't know, because I'm hearing that we're getting another volume after 9, and then I think the last one will be 11. I think they were going to wrap Ruby up by, like, volume 11. I don't know. Like, yeah, volume 10 or 11, from what I heard. So, either way, I'm cool with it. If any part of the writing can be a little weak, it's in the humor. The characters from Atlas seem a little too extreme at times. Calavera and her rival are particularly amusing, nor are the two bodyguards. Ugh. It could be way worse, of course. So I'll take a little forced humor over crude humor gags, which the show has always avoided. Another big character in Volume 6, in volume six is Adam Taurus. He got his own short before the volume aired, and the writers hyped him up quite a bit. After, like, five volumes... Of appearing once in a while, his character arc was finally going to end here in Volume 6. So, his character has always had a mixed history over the years. While my team was loud as hell. Sorry about that. While he was well-liked in the first two volumes, people started to lose faith in him by three. So, like, I don't understand, like, how could you hate him? Volume 5 wrecked him for most fans to point where it was too late by volume six. Like he's still my favorite he's still my favorite character in the series. But you can definitely see why he ain't for everyone. I'll probably write some kind of article tweet on him like really soon, so I won't go into too much. He gave us some great fights in six and has some solid solid dialogue throughout. He may not be a fan favorite. But, you know, he definitely works well as the big boss of the season. 
Another character who got a lot of attention here was Salem, and through her development, we saw more of Ozpin as well. So this was the longest episode in the season, which makes sense because they finally told us the true origin of this, of Salem and Ozpin and why she turned to the dark side. It's a very interesting episode, and you ultimately have to decide who was right. Was it Oz or was it Salem? Personally, at one point, I was on Salem's side. While the power did start to go to her head, she still stayed very sane and reasonable during that stretch. Ozpin, on the other hand, is the one who decided to pretend that he was on her side only to try running away with their kids. If he had actually tried to talk to Salem face-to-face, then I think they would have been okay. But you gotta kind of see it on a, like a different perspective. He was kind of the one being unreasonable here. Oz... Osman is very okay to work with with the gods, even though they're the ones who messed up Salem in the first place, and appear to be rather malicious. They did come close to ending the human race after all, I mean, let's just be real here. You now have to question Osman's decision to gather all of the relics, as doing so will just bring the gods back to murder them all. Meanwhile, it's hard to say why Salem wants them. I'm hoping she's planning on attacking the gods or something, which would be pretty cool. It's too early to guess at the exact goals right now, but I'm definitely... A part of me is rooting for Salem, and a part of me is rooting for Austin. And after re-watching eight volumes and kind of seeing who was right and who's wrong at the time it's kind of like it's 50 50 right there so meanwhile to me honestly this was ruby's best volume yet i'm gonna put it at five yeah i'm gonna put it at five i'm putting this one at five she's really gotten used to her leadership role and this is the first time when we actually see her giving out orders she even stepped out from crow's shadow and her character arc appears to be complete she's close to mastering her silver eyes as well which is totally great uh weiss gets the least development from the floor in this volume but she had already had a lot in four and five so it looks like seven will be another big one for her so that makes sense blake and yang get the closure with the adam thought so that was important you know yang is effectively over her trauma now and blake's resolve to never run away again is confirmed she's definitely come a long way while blake is still my favorite of the main four like i said that's my daughter it's Blake Belladonna supremacy over here. She could possibly pass Ruby for, you know, the number one spot at some point. But it was just her bad luck that would also be such a great volume and four years later, but you know. <clears throat> but I do think this volume felt a little too short though. While the episode started out rather long, like with the Salem Adventure. The final episodes were all extremely short, perhaps more so than previous volumes. 
But with the increased budget and, you know, the mainstream attention, you know, after all, we lost a whole episode here to Limbo, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, finally we got the return of Neo. We got the big return of Neo here. Um, and it's been very long time since she last appeared, so I'm glad to see her return. Neo is also my second favorite of, you know, of, like, mostly the Ruby characters. Blake, there's Neo, there's Raven, there's Crow, there is Winter, there's Weiss, and who, uh, oh yeah, there's Coco Adele, a Team Coffee. So, it, it's a lot going into it so her fight with cinder also reminds you just how good she is without cinder's maiden abilities she would certainly have lost so it's only fair to say that neo is high tier and could probably take on just about any non-maiden and we'll see if she ends up being a little nerfed or something but otherwise her partnership with cinder is probably enough to take down team ruby Crow plus Team Jean and Oscar, I'd say. But it was really good. And as for the credit scene, the after credit scenes, it was pretty kind of so so. Salem is making more grim. That doesn't seem like a threat, though. By definition, silver eyes eradicate grim with no exceptions. We also found out in this one is that the ability is straight from the light god so i don't think salem could override that i don't think she could i don't know i want her to but <laughs> most likely they serve as a diversion or something to keep the military busy with these ones but still i felt like in this volume you know a whole grim invasion was going to happen and it did. It, it did. I am so sorry. It did. Okay, it did. But overall, Ruby, again, I have high hopes for, you know, all you know, the upcoming new volume. We, I hope this year we're getting a volume nine. They say we're getting a volume nine. I want to know what happens after that whatever that happened at 8. So, Volume 6, you know, overall, it was great. You know, we got a little bit, I think, a lot lesser action in this one. And, you know, my review for that one, 10-10. So, 10-10 on the volume per season for volume six now seven and eight my fucking jesus seven and eight where do i even begin with seven and eight eight was kind of you know save atlas rescue everyone in mantle it was basically kind of like a protect and serve kind of thing you know with penny being you know the winter maiden for a short 
time throughout the, like after volume seven she was you know winter maiden in eight and then that got cut short as she died and for real this time so she passed on winter maiden powers to winter and then my hate for ironwood grew so goddamn heavy and after all of that <clears throat> The ace operatives pissed me off so, so bad. They were basically like kissing Ironwood's ass just for that one. But you know what? what, what let's just kind of sh- cut this one short. The take for volume seven, aside from its lacking traditional post credit scene, volume seven felt heroic and triumphant while at the same time seemingly you know not hopeless but kind of hopeless so kind of like half and half the result isn't a perfect world within weiss's homeland but it is a world that still has a fighting chance to reclaim its soul and hopefully you know we could potentially see how all the struggles hardships and sacrifices for the soul play out in volume eight so I got no other great with anybody. Okay, who messaged me? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, someone messaged me, and I, I'm kind of like really, really upset with it. But I need everyone to kind of like leave me alone today. I don't know why. But Volume Seven, great soundtrack. You know. New characters, new outfits, pretty much the same goal, taking down Salem. Oh, and also, I forgot to mention, Crow, the character Crow, did get a new voice actor in Volume 7 and 8. So, Crow did get a new voice actor. And I like this voice actor a whole lot more than the current one, despite the allegations he had against him. Um, I think throughout volume six of Ruby, but we don't talk about that. So it was good to hear that Crow got a new voice actor. It was really good. So again, in volume seven, this one successfully integrated the identified the identity of Ruby that has been introduced in the previous six volumes and packs it with some clever twists. You know, it has the adventure, the action, the comedy, and more serious tone of deep character development and story progression. Trust and fear are the major themes that run across this volume. Those themes are discussed in every part of the plot point while the writing manages to make those two linger in one plot point to another. Overall, Volume 7 has been, like, you know, great ride with compelling storytelling and the character development i could bravely say that this volume has been you know another good movie volume to date so so this volume seven successfully delivered story writing character development animation so i rate that one in all honesty an eight out of ten for volume seven now volume eight volume eight Cinder's backstory was good. Where do I begin with this one? 
between another solid soundtrack, Cinder's backstory, and my ongoing growing hate for Ironwood. Do y'all really want to hear this from me? No, you don't. But we gonna talk. It shows us what being powerless and living in fear of others meant for her. And this is Cinder's backstory. Thus explaining to us where her lust for power came from. It shows us that she's willing to try and be patient and put up with abuse if it means she gets power in the long run. But she's got that temper that the promise of eventual reward and threat of punishment can't always quell, thus explaining why she's willing to be Salem's dragon, but is also willing to go off script to settle her grudges against Ruby. Unfortunately, we did get this too late in the volume. So I kind of understand why it was here, since there are some clear parallels between Salem and Madame. Madame, why is nobody talking about the fact that Cinder was actually living in a brothel? But at that point, I was so fed up with Cinder that it really doesn't have this like emotional oof to it. It would have had in volume three or even four, but I despised that part. But you know, that's Cinder's backstory. But I despised, not hated, despised Ironwood and Aesops in this one. The entire theme for this vol volume also was about questioning questioning authority as people from different sides of the battle questioned if they were doing the right thing. Some were driven by emotions, but some, by the volume, were driven to kiss the asses of their overlords to the point of favoritism. So, this Ruby series alone, alone, has always been engrossed in moral and ethical issues. This has been the entire essence of the series alone, for all eight volumes. Whether it you know whether it's primary like primary topics or simply ideological disagreement, the moral conflict that has always been the show's driving force. Whether it was Weissface and Blake in Volume One, or character arcs like Yang and Ravens, or the Schnee family as a whole, etc., etc. Volume Eight went back into it in ways we haven't seen since. All those early, all too early volumes, and it went back to it in a significant manner. It's not ideal by any means, but it's a start. So, to conclude my Ruby review, I am so sorry that it's past an hour. This is another hour episode that I felt like I did not need to do but like I said I had nothing better to do I do enjoy this very much so as a whole while volume 8 had a strong start with its lore and characters but after the second half everything surrounding its core storyline became an unexpected mess and I'm not going to lie, there was some mess of some rushed conclusions, which denies other characters the depth of exploration they equally deserve. So, 
To be honest, I felt like Volume 8 was a little bit rushed. A little bit rushed. But that's okay, because we got Volume 9 coming up. Hopefully we get it this year. And that concludes my Ruby review, my Ruby series review thoughts, opinions, shitty rambling. I do apologize, but that is okay. And so that concludes my, you know, the whole Ruby thing. And I'm excited for volume nine. I know for a fact, now that we have Winter as the Winter Maiden, I am hoping like hell we get Raven back into the fold. Raven has to come back at some point. Crow thinks Ruby and Yang are dead. So Crow is with Robin and the Aesops, you know, as they saw the fall of Atlas and Mantle. So I'm excited. I can't wait for it. I'm hoping we get it in October um, this year. I, I hope we do. But they haven't really set a release date, like the actual official release date. All I know is they said that Volume 9 is going to come out in 2023. So hopefully we get some kind of more news with that. But thank you guys so much for listening to this off-the-wall rambling of an episode. I hope you have an amazing Friday. Again, happy Aquarius season. And uh, next episode, well, mini-sode, I get to talk about my upcoming birthday week and what I'm going to be doing, what are the plans, everything. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you guys have a nice day. Go eat, go sleep, go work out, go read, go watch some anime, go watch some movies, whatever. And uh, stay weird, stay magical, stay witchy, and stay positively awesome. I love you guys. Bye-bye.